This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right. Hello, welcome to another episode of Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and we've got another great guest who will tell you about the pivotal moments in her career. We hope to inspire and entertain you. Now, this week's guest is writer, executive producer, actor, showrunner, oh, she's done so much, Suzanne Heathcote. Suzanne is the lead writer on season three of Killing Eve, but she's also won loads of awards. She was executive story editor for Fear the Walking Dead and we spoke via the power of technology during lockdown. So, Suzanne, thank you so much for talking to me in lockdown. How's it going for you? Are you in your bedroom at the moment? Yeah, I am. I'm in the bedroom. I, I figured acoustically it, it might be better. It can get very echoey in the living room. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, like everyone, I think, sort of just trying to make the best of it. Um, and there's also that sort of feeling of, is this the new normal? How long is this going to last? You know, I think it's the uncertainty more than anything else yeah. that sort of is adding to it all. If we knew, okay, we've got to do this for another two weeks and then in two weeks, this is going to happen very specifically. I think we'd all feel a bit more at ease, but it's just the the unknown of it. Um, is the space but, you giving know, you that. extra creativity? Are you rattling off loads of amazing shows for us to see in the future? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. You'd think that this would be the perfect opportunity for everyone to, like, finish that novel and, you know, write that screenplay that you've been itching to write all this time. It's odd um, because day-to-day my days don't actually feel that different. I had a screenwriter friend in Los Angeles who was sort of joking with me over text and saying... You know, what the world is realising is this is what it feels like for a screenwriter every single day of their life. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, you don't have structure to your day normally. It's sort of you kind of have to make that yourself. And some people are more disciplined than others, um, you know, and writers to varying degrees. But it's odd at the moment because it feels... it, it Normally you need the outside world to kind of feed yeah. your inspiration and your creativity. And there's suddenly a complete lack of that, even online. You know, you, every news outlet online is sort of saying the same thing daily it feels like it just doesn't feel like anything's really happening even though obviously huge things are happening right now so it's it's just very odd I've I've spoken to other friends who are feeling similarly you know those who are on strict deadlines obviously are just getting to it but yeah it's 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 just an unknown very unusual time creatively but I'm getting there I'm reading a lot which has been great because one thing this time is providing is space that is a luxury that you don't normally have is actually the time to really clarify your thoughts normally I'm running around in writers rooms or I'm in in in-person meetings and I'm having to do a lot on the phone but I'm still there's kind of a silence that I'm getting which I don't normally get I try not to watch tv in the days (laughs) Um, and try to save that for the evenings as best I can because I just spiral otherwise otherwise I'm like on my third episode of 
like old school Poirot <laughs> by noon and uh, the day's just gone. But I, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to read a lot and just use the time to really allow myself to think kind of like I used to in my old playwriting days really before TV. So that is a benefit, definitely. And is there a lot of uncertainty? I was reading that sort of Hollywood is kind of shut down and all productions mm. have paused. So for writers, is it like, oh, no, where, where's the next job going to come from in a way? Yeah, there's, I mean, like every industry, none of us know what it's going to look like in the next six months. What's definitely happened for us is, you know, yeah, as you say, all productions closed. Um, and that's sort of globally, really. Um, we just don't know what it's going to look like going forward. So... Uh, actually, in Hollywood, they're wanting a lot written right now because I think the feeling is they want as many scripts ready to go as possible once things do fire up. But there's inevitably going to be a sort of bottleneck with production because there's all the stuff that had to shut down mid-shoot and then all the things that are supposed to be shooting now and then all the things that will be shooting or are scheduled to shoot once <laughs> we start. And I, I suspect and sort of what some of the industry you know um reporting is saying is that it's going to be a lot of closed sets you know i think international shoots are obviously going to be off the table for a while i suspect it'll be you know closed sound stages on the lots in hollywood and it's normally very unusual to shoot things in la um certainly cable productions they tend to shoot all over and you know um film and tv tends to follow the tax breaks so you tend to shoot wherever there are tax breaks that's why there's a lot being shot in canada I think it's all going to go back to LA. I mean, this is just mm. my, you know, what I suspect will happen. But I think it's all going to be pretty LA centric and small closed sets, sort of the days of two hundred extras and big, you know, scenes set in historical squares in Prague. I mean, they're just <laughs> gone for the moment. Well, you say that um, you know you, you're not watching much telly. Um, you know, maybe get it to the evenings. You are providing us with some brilliant telly at the moment. So thank you for for providing us with a little bit of a breather with Killing Eve. I, I mean, have you been on social media? Have you seen the love for you last night after this, this the um, episode three showed in the UK? Yeah, I I knew episode three was going to be a big moment. Obviously, I knew what was coming this season. You know, it's a slow burn at the start, which was always intended, really, and then. Yeah, I knew that episode three, it was sort of, there'd certainly be some action happening. But I've actually come, I know, (laughs) I've I've come off social media just because you can get a bit... um, Yes, I can imagine. You can get very lost in all of that. And I, you know, my sister sort of surreptitiously will, you know, she can't, she looks at everything. So she's like, oh, people are saying this and people are saying that. So she's filtering it for you. That's nice. She is, she is. It's just, um, and I've done this before when I've had other stuff, be them plays or other episodes of television that I've written go out. You can very quickly get into just reading absolutely everyone's opinion. And the truth of it is, you know, everything's subjective. Some people are going to like it and some people aren't. And it's really hard not to take the stuff personally. It's You'd think that people are really bulletproof to it. But the reality is most of us in the industry are really sensitive artistic types. (laughs) So it's, you just sort of... I before even the first episode aired I I just thought I'm going to come off everything and also because I'm sort of looking to write new projects right now again uh, before you know it you're just in a sort of wormhole three hours in of just looking at what everyone thinks and feels and I want nothing more than for people to enjoy it and I hope it is providing some sort of 
good old-fashioned distraction and entertainment during this time for people who really need it. But it, uh, it is. Yeah. Don't worry. Oh, that's it good. Is. It really is. But when you, when you were first given the opportunity, and, and you know you were taking over from Emerald and and Phoebe, you must have been terrified, or, or were you just no? I'm excited. This is this is my this is a fantastic opportunity. I think. It was definitely a combination of the two. Um, you know, I was really excited to get the job. And as you can, you know, it was a, it's a big job. It was a big deal for me in my career. I, you know, I knew it was a huge deal. And I loved the show. So combination of all those things, I was so excited about it. And really excited to be back in England. You know, I've done all, all my TV writing career the past five, six years has been in America. So this was the first time I was really writing for British actors and that very British sensibility that the show has, which I really love. And I was thrilled with that. I'd say probably from the first day, it was like the sleepless nights began. <laughs> and you're just the, the, the enormity of it. And it's so high profile. Um, you know, it's one thing to really feel like you're overseeing a show creatively. That's a lot of pressure anyway. When you're taking something on that so many people love and that's in this, you know, it's really captured the zeitgeist at a very specific moment and has a very loyal fan base. And the fact that it's a different person each season is so public. Normally, no one knows who the writer is. Yeah. No one really cares. <laughs> they just watch something and they know if they like it or not. Um, but this was very public, and and you know, the announcement that I was doing it felt, for me at least, you know, very high profile. So of course, you sort of you want to do your best work and you want your best work to be work that people who like the show enjoy. But at a certain point, you just have to stop writing for everyone else and kind of really just feel that you're you're going into it and just having as much fun with it as you can and sort of writing what you feel is best for the show and, and just trusting your instincts as best you can. It's not easy, it, no. but you sort of have to try. Well, it, it's really working, but I'm kind of intrigued. So you have day one. So, how, I mean, how much is the book and how much do you change? And then are you working with other writers from day one or is it you with a blank piece of paper? Well, when I first went in, so I, I had meetings um, with the production company, Sid Gentle, and then the network, BBC America and AMC. <clears throat> I Those meetings were in LA and I chatted to them you know just there was a series of meetings and it's it's like an audition really you sort of have a general meeting and then I read all the scripts and um they hadn't finished shooting so I just had the scripts initially Mm -hmm. for season two which I read and by that point the books were sort of they'd gone beyond the books so it really was you know I think really by season two and season three that you know the books were kind of they'd gone Phoebe had gone past the books in season one they said come in and just pitch very broadly what what you would do for season three. So I did, I just went in and I just said, this is, you know, very loosely knowing that as I got into the weeds of it, a lot of it would change and they knew that too. But I said very broadly, my instincts are this and um, these are some characters I'd want to introduce and sort of where I kind of roughly saw the characters sort of begin at the season and end. And then from that, once I really started in earnest, um, you know, I met with several writers in London and there was a writer's room we had. I There were four female writers, all British, that we had in the room. Um, and we had a couple of months with them. So it was sort of really looking at the overarching story. And then I would break the episodes with them. They I like assigning the episodes early so that the writer knows what their episode is while we're breaking it. 
Um, and so each writer sort of, you know, I'd have them, we have a whiteboard and this is just stuff that I've preferred in writer's rooms that I've been in in the past is that when it's your episode, you're up at the board, you're the one sort of writing on the whiteboard and we're pitching. And ultimately my role is to sort of curate that experience really for, for the episodes. And so you have to have a yay or nay person in the room who says, no, I don't think we should do that. Or yes, I think we should. Um, but the joy of it is hearing everyone else's ideas and, you know, you build off each other's ideas, the kind of yes and of it. I'm imagining, um, you mentioned episodes, it makes me think of the show episodes, except that their writer's room is probably very different <laughs> to the one you're in. But it's the similar yeah. thing with you, somebody standing up. I'm just trying to picture it and it, you've, you've described that mm-hmm. so well. Um, but you also have to have a strong personality, don't you? Because you talked about going in to pitch your ideas, but you might have a great idea, but you might be rubbish at selling it. And also you've got to be the person saying in this room, I don't think that's a great idea. It's quite difficult and, and I guess quite um, diplomatic. Yes, yeah. You, you, I feel it's really important. I've been in good rooms and bad rooms. <laughs> And, um, you know, episodes is definitely, they're, they're definitely depicting a bad yeah. room. I felt actually when I watched episodes, I mean, I love that because obviously I see so much of it from the inside. But um, the, I have to say like 99% of the jobs I've done, and I've done a lot of jobs for shows that have been in development that haven't necessarily aired yet or haven't been made. You know, there's a lot of development rooms mm. I've done. So, um, and, and almost every room I've been in has been a positive experience. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's you definitely learn with every job. You sort of sit there and think, if I was running this, you know, I'd bring I more snacks. You can't help it. <laughs> snacks are very important. But um, yeah, and I remember I did a, a job um, for HBO, and uh, it was a great showrunner, a guy called Ron Fitzgerald, and it was him and Guillermo del Toro actually, where the people sort of, you know, they were kind of leading the room. And Ron would say, I really don't like no. Um, if you don't like what someone's pitched, try and find an alt before you say that's rubbish, basically. <laughs> and it's a small thing, but to start the room with that in earnest and you're setting the tone for that. You know what I mean? So if the showrunner's the person saying, oh, what the hell did you think of that for? That's crap. Everyone's going to sort of get into that. Ether, yeah. you know, that creates the atmosphere. Whereas if you're the person saying, I, you know, I think it's a great idea. I just don't know if that feels right for that moment in the episode and and not to say you're lying but just really validating that person but saying why you don't think it's a good idea and so that will then help that person or someone else or you even come up with an alternative that's better and so it's I think it's all about just creating an environment of encouragement so people aren't scared to pitch because I've been in rooms where you're terrified to pitch something because if the showrunner or the person leading that room doesn't like it you're you're frightened of getting mm. shot down and, and that's the last thing you want for creativity. Yeah, you just want really. to um, make sure your ideas can get out there and that's a really lovely, it sounds like a lovely atmosphere actually and I bet you have a bit of a laugh as well because there's so much humour in Killing Eve that, you know, I bet you had a right old giggle yeah. half the time. Oh, we had such a, you know, we had such a good time. We were very lucky, you know, it was a great room. There were four fantastic writers. We had Jeff Melvoin, he's an executive producer as well. He'd be in the room as well and, and um yeah, we just, we had a, a really good time with it. And yeah, I mean, you just make each other laugh or gasp or, you know, you know you're onto something when there's a real reaction, when someone pitches something and you'll go, oh, it's sort of, that's, that's, they're the great moments when you really run with it. 
I, I find actually often in dramas that the most serious dramas I've done have been the rooms we've laughed in the most, funnily enough. I, I think it's just a sort of a respite from it. But not that this is, obviously there's a lot of humour in this show, so it's different. But yeah, we, we, we had a really good time. We were very, very lucky. And do you go on set much? I was talking to um, Katie Baxendale in a previous episode and she was mm-hmm. talking about she'd done a a crime drama and she was talking about how she always wanted to make sure certain things were right but she couldn't be on set and they didn't do what she wanted and she was really cross about it because you it's quite important isn't it it is important that the american model um you're always on set and not just the showrunner in fact the showrunner often is um in america is fielding so many other things that they physically can't be on set and for that reason it's normally the person who's written the episode who's on set So in the American system, you are a writer slash producer because you are on set producing your episode and you're actually really quite an integral part of the shoot. So, um, you know, for example, I did a a zombie show. I did um, Fear the Walking Dead for a season and Mm. we shot that in Tijuana and I actually ended up, I was on set for the two episodes I wrote and then I ended up producing another writer's episode because they weren't, they couldn't get down to Tijuana. They had a conflict. And so I produced their episode for them. And you're sort of essential in that model because, you know, it's a different director every episode there. They don't do block directors the way they do in the UK. So it's a different episode, different director of the episode. And, you know, the showrunner is often tied up in LA. You like dealing with 5,000 different things. And you need that continuity. You need someone who understands where the scripts are going in order to understand what's important. One writer said to me, you're needed about 5% of the time, but that 5% is very important. And it's you're the showrunner's eyes and ears on set, so you can text them or call them and say, you know, this is happening, and I, I just, I, I, you know, have a look at the rushes, see what you think, or do, do you think I should step in and correct something here? Or, you know, as you as you get more confident, you use your own, in, you know, instincts really with it. But it's essential. That isn't the case in the UK. You know, the, the writer really isn't on set. It's a, it's a very different model. I was on set for this. I went on set, though not as much as I would have done probably in an American model, um, just because I was writing as we were shooting and the room wasn't running during the shoot. So I really was tied to the script while we were shooting. I was, you know just at the laptop night and day oh my um, goodness just, tweaking yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and traveling all over the locations are fantastic and also probably trying not to steal Villanelle's clothes yeah I mean those costumes I mean Sam Perry who did the costumes for this season was just amazing um and she and Jodie had a fantastic relationship and it just that's something actually that I could just I I knew with Sam Sam could just be left to her own creative brilliance. And I was just pleasantly surprised when on set or if I watched watched the rushes that day, I could just, you know, I I knew that it would just be brilliant, whatever she came up with. So Mm. occasionally you're right in the script, maybe the sort of thing you see them wearing or if it's referenced in the dialogue. But ultimately, um, yeah, Sam was just able to really go nuts and she did such a great job this season. And we can't give too much away, obviously, but we, you've talked about the, the female characters and there are some new ones. And, and episode one, surely everyone will have seen episode one by now, but there was a brilliant wedding scene in it. That must have been brilliant to film, but it looked utter chaos as well. That's it, very complicated, I imagine, to do something like that. Yeah, they had like weather issues on the day because they had lights outside that were coming in and there was like high winds. And I mean, it was just, yeah, I was on set actually that day and um, 
those things just happen and you're built for the unexpected um but that was one of those moments that day of the wedding it's it's always fun those things it looks visually just much bigger than you'd ever imagined you know and that's always brilliant when you end up seeing that in the rushes and and you mentioned earlier about this whole you know episode different episodes with um different female writers whose idea was it originally then to do that I actually I really don't know um it's I mean I I think initially it it must have been through Sid Gentle it's definitely them who kind of really pushed that agenda forward and actually it's meant that not just one you know this enormous opportunity which would normally be taken by one person one woman when there's so few opportunities like this for women really in the industry more increasingly but still you know comparatively it's it's a it's a minority um it's enabled four women to take this job and so that in itself has just been amazing actually and and for all of us, it was the first time in this role, you know, so that as well, it's sort of enabling us all to take this huge step up in our careers, um, which is, you know, massive when you think about it. But I think it, it, it's really something that came from Sid Gentle and, and was the way they wanted to to sort of develop it going forward. I think they realised once season one came out and was such a huge hit, they realised it was just an enormous opportunity mm. Um, and and so took that opportunity for as many women as possible. And, and you know, if we rewind, because I know you've said in the past that you started to write because you were an actor and you were frustrated by the lack of, of female parts for women. You must be really proud as to where you are now compared to where you began your, your writing journey in a way. Such a lot has changed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unrecognisable, really, how much has changed. And and I never had a an end game as such. I mean, I I, I trained as an actor originally, um, and I was working in the theatre as an actor for about five years. And I started writing purely out of frustration with the lack of roles for women and sort of you know huge gaps between jobs. And um, I I really don't like being idle. I I really struggled with the submissiveness I felt as an actor where you are entirely reliant on someone else to give you work and to enable you to work. And so I started writing plays purely because, you know, I thought I'd write something that I could be in. And um, when I started at the Royal Court, it sort of, uh, I, I just had an idea for a play that I wasn't able to cast myself in. And I thought, well, I'll just see if I can write a play first and then I'll write myself in the next thing. And I've never written myself in anything since. It sort of snowballed from there. And and from theatre, you know, I, I moved to New York. I was a playwright in New York for six years. No, well, four years really in New York and then back and forth with LA. And um, it was only while I was in New York, I never thought, oh, I want to end up writing American television. It was just while in that community, there was you know, a lot of playwrights from New York naturally progressing to TV. It's a very natural progression over there. And so I just found myself, you know, going that way. And uh, and then I moved to LA. I've been in LA sort of the past four or five years. And and it all sort of won. It was a play that got me my first job in LA. And then that sort of built onto that. It's it's really evolved in a way that I would never have imagined originally. I love that because um, some people you speak to have got a plan, but it's sort of, it's just worked out through frustration. I mean, do you think you would ever go back to acting? I, you know, I, 
I say I miss acting, but I really don't miss being an actor. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the, the act of acting, the actual craft of it, I, I love. And when I was in New York, I did a little bit and I do readings here and there. And I, you know, I did some classes in New York just to see if it'd been so long. I was like, oh, I just see if I can. And I remember the acting teacher there, she was this amazing woman called Maggie Flanagan, who's sort of taught all the greats and she said to me you really you know you really should be acting and I the 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 problem for me is and you know I mean I have an acting agent in LA but uh, we have the same conversation every year where it's sort of do I really want to commit to building an acting career in LA which which involves you know driving to every audition and and really putting the work into that and the truth is I don't Mm. every now and again I think it would be nice to just do one thing but I'm in the auditions on the other side now and I have to say at no point when the actors walk in do I think I wish I was you I'm I'm always grateful yeah to be the other side of the table you have to be maybe uh Colin Dexter in Morse used to used to plonk himself in scenes didn't he yeah so maybe you could do that it's true, it's true. And I've been in writer's rooms and they're like, oh, you could do this part. And I'm like, oh, no, no. I mean, I I think if I were to do anything again, it would be, that's exactly what it would be. It would be a, a, a nice little scene that I've written myself in like a small, you know, I, I, I'd love to write. I, the next thing I'd really like to write, aside from TV, obviously, is I'd love to do just a small independent film that I directed. And then I'm like, yeah, maybe I put myself in a small scene. <laughs> but... Uh, no, I don't. I, I there's an element. To be honest, I miss the theatre. There's nothing quite like being on stage, mm. and I love that it disappears once you're done. You know, it's sort of it's with you for that moment, and then it's gone. But uh, no, I I I don't. I really don't miss being an actor. I, I and the just... trouble is, if you if you have to um, put yourself for lots of auditions and sort of really giving yourself a lot of time for that then the writing just goes out the window doesn't it and you sort of you lose everything that you've been working on it's it they're two two professions which are so encompassing aren't they that it's not like dabbling in a bit of this and a bit of that with other jobs but that you you've got to give yourself to one or the other haven't you totally I mean that's sort of you know my agent and I we have this conversation about every nine months in LA where we sit down and he says you know what about acting and I say yeah you know uh and and he, I mean, he stopped saying it now because this is sort of four or five years ago, but he would say, okay, you have two options. Uh, the first is um, we build you from the ground up, you know, and again, in LA, you've got to be in the gym every other day. You've got to get your hair done. You've got to, I mean, you've oh, really got to commit to work, all of that. Isn't it? And then drive yourself across town, which takes half the day to then audition for, you know, an episodic character in CSI Miami or some such. <laughs> and kind of get to know the casting directors and build your career and then, and he said, we could spend like a year or two years really building you that way, or you can just write something and be in it. And uh, of course, you know, it's a no, it's, it's a no brainer for me. It's a real commitment of your time building your career as an actor, obviously. I mean, that's a very obvious thing to say, but I think sometimes people think when actors aren't working, they're really lolling around doing nothing. And the reality is your, you know, every audition, even if it's a tiny five liner, you have to prep it and learn it and figure out what you're going to wear and how you're going to present it and what are you going to do that's going to make you stand out from everyone else and you've got to get to the audition. And I mean, all of that is, is days of work. And I just would much rather be sat down writing. That just feels like a much better use of my time 
and more creatively fulfilling for me personally at this time. So yeah, it, it's that life is is not for me anymore. But I I love actors and I I do yeah, I I I there are moments where I really miss just the creativity of acting and also not having to think about the story, you know, just doing something creative where you can just create the character and really their behavior and those moments without worrying about what is the subplot and you know what 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 does this speech really mean you know you're you're approaching it from the character's perspective as opposed to story perspective I miss that certainly you sound like you you love writing so much did you do a lot of it at school did you have a, a teacher who really inspired you or is it something that's happened to you later in life I mean, definitely later in life. I was terrible at school. And I went to drama school. I didn't go to university. I mean, English was the only thing I was sort of... I was above average at, I would say. I mean, I did no... I, I, yeah, I didn't do any work at school. So I coasted by... And I'm not someone who did no work and then got straight A's. Quite the opposite. You know, I was sort of... I'd be happy with a B grade. I was like, great. Um, so because, if we if we uh, spoke to your old uh, classmates, they wouldn't go, oh, yeah, we always knew Suzanne was going to write all this stuff because she was just like top of the class and reading books all the time. Absolutely not. No, total opposite. I mean, every school report says she has potential, but she's just not working hard enough pretty much. <laughs> I was constantly talking in class. I never did my homework. I mean, I was, my parents, you know, I'm one of four kids and uh, they cared about my education, but they weren't the parents who were there looking at my homework diary every day and saying, what did you get for that assignment? I mean, my mum didn't have a clue what subjects I was studying. I mean, you know, they did the best they could, but they weren't hands on with our education. So I really got away with murder. And yeah, I, I got by on minimum effort. But I will say English... I mean, drama, I wanted to be an actor. I thought all of it was completely unnecessary. I wanted to be an actor as far as I was concerned, I was gonna be the next Maggie Smith. And none of this really, I didn't need any of it. Um, And yeah, that was all I cared about was going to drama school, which I did, you know, I didn't go to university, I went to drama school, which I loved and, and I'm still great. I'd say my drama school friends are probably still my dearest friends educationally speaking so that, that so that was um a really good move to do that because in a way it was something doing something that you loved and it also led eventually to doing what you're doing now but obviously the work ethic changed because if you were told at that time to do lots of writing you might have said oh no I, I don't want to do it so what what changed what was the time that you thought right I actually need to, to knuckle down and, and get writing was it was it a money thing yeah I'm, well I think it was a creativity thing I mean I will say while academically I didn't thrive at school I've always had a strong work ethic I mean I I've for example, you know, during my schooling years, no, I was terrible with schoolwork, although I did like English. English was, of all the academic subjects, the ones that I did best in. And I had a teacher, Miss Walker, who I absolutely loved. And I remember writing to her actually when I was at a play at the National Theatre. And I just, I, I wrote her a letter completely out of the blue, I hadn't seen her for years, saying, I just want you to know that I didn't really enjoy school, but you were my favourite teacher and you really helped and encouraged me and thank you. And she wrote a letter back. I always remember saying, there are a few moments in a teacher's life that makes it all worth it and getting your letter was one of them, which was lovely. Oh, and yeah, um, definitely. I just felt the need to sort of communicate that. But even though I didn't work hard academically at school, I think I, I it just didn't suit me that that the particular school I was at, the kind of classroom learning I had, 
I did always have a strong work ethic and I always had like, I always had a job outside school and I, you know, I, I had like eight different drama classes outside school and I do drama exams outside school and I was always doing that stuff. And so when it came to drama school itself, I worked very hard um, and took it incredibly seriously. I, I always took drama seriously. Really, when it came to the writing, it was because I was unable to work as an actor because I was either having huge weights between jobs or I was getting cast as sort of the maid in, you know, a classical play and had one or two lines and just felt so frustrated that I wasn't able to work more. And so I thought, well, I'll... I I didn't see the writing as the work. I thought, I'll write something so I can work. And then... It was really through the Royal Court and Simon Stevens, the playwright, was the writer um, who taught the programme. I did two programmes at the Royal Court and he taught both of them. And he really changed my perception about writing and enabled me to feel that it was something I could do and that I had a voice of my own that was really worth exploring. It's going back again, isn't it, to when you talked about the writer's room and having people being allowed to speak and not be worried about um, feeling embarrassed about their thoughts. So he encouraged you to do that. And then as a result, you've, you're doing the same with, with who you write with now. It's so important, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's. I remember having a sort of light bulb moment with him um, at the Royal Court. And it was this was really where being an actor helped me because he was talking about... I, I always remember... We would go and see every play at the court. They, those of us in the programme, that was sort of part of the programme, is that you saw every play and then we'd all come back and discuss it. And we were all complete novice writers and we'd sort of be, you know, criticising deeply all these incredible <laughs> plays. And, um, and I remember someone said, oh, I really like the play, but I did find myself zoning out and sort of thinking about what I was going to have for lunch the next day. And he said, why do we do that? Why do we zone out? And we had this huge discussion and he would write on the board sort of every idea that people came up with and they say, oh, well, it's because the direction isn't working at that moment or it's because the actors aren't really in the present character or, you know, I mean, just all these different, oh, it's because people aren't on thought or, you know, whatever it was. And every single thing that we came up with, he'd say, no, no, no. He was very definitive. He was like, no, no, no. That's not why your mind is wandering. And finally after sort of half an hour of us trying to come up with it he said it's because in the script there isn't action it's people talking without anything actually happening and then the minute an action comes in that's when suddenly the audience click back in and you're listening again and I said so does that mean for every line of dialogue there needs to be an action beneath it And that was an actor's tool. That was something I'd learned as an actor to action every line of dialogue. And he said, absolutely. And at that moment, I thought, oh, I I think I understand. It was just a a real light bulb moment for me. And I thought, I think I can understand how I can approach this. Whereas writing, I'd always felt so out of my depth with it. I thought I hadn't gone to university. I didn't feel particularly well read outside the theatre. You know, who was I to write a play? And and once I understood that, I thought hey, I I I think I can I think I can dig into this and really begin writing. And and that's when I wrote my first play. And so that gave you the confidence. And would you agree that starting in theatre is the best way into this? You know, because you did aven- eventually end up in writing for telly, and so many people want to. Would you advise that? Because it sounds like it was a really massive help to you. Yeah, I mean, there's. 
I can only speak from my experience. And I think, had I known how to write film or TV, I might have tried that first. The, the truth of it was for me, as an actor, I'd done a tiny bit of telly um, and a few sort of short films and things, but really everything I'd done had been in the theatre and all my training was theatre. And I'd read plays. I'd read lots of plays. I hadn't read screenplays. Screenplays weren't widely available online the way they are now. And um, I just wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of TV and film. So I started with the theatre just because I knew it and I knew the format of it and I understood theatre, or at least I felt I did at that time. For me, it's it was a great way in because you really, you really start with character in the theatre. That being said, there are lots of people who go into TV and film, you know, who really, that is their way in. They start through TV or film production and work their way up and are extraordinarily talented screenwriters. So it's it's not that the theatre is a must, but I'm grateful for that experience. And it definitely gives me a very specific perspective and, and style when it comes to writing for screen, which, which for me personally works. I'm really interested how you then, so you moved your whole life across to America you, and you moved from theatre. Well, you, start, you continued in the theatre in America for a bit, but then you mm, you did yeah. that that gear change. So firstly, going to America, what? How did you feel about that? And and your family? You're moving abroad, and you're not moving quite, quite to quite a close country. It's quite a long way away. How how did that go down? And how did you feel about it? Well, you, you know, I was obsessed with America from a very young age. <laughs> did you watch the Dukes of Hazzard? Or? Yeah, I I can't remember what it was. I mean, I remember it's funny actually because two of my brothers live in America as well. Well, you know, three of the four of us have moved to America all completely randomly and I remember watching E.T. with my brother a couple of years ago with his kids over Thanksgiving and we're like yeah let's watch E.T. and he said to me afterwards oh god you know just watching it again after all those years I remember the feeling of watching that as a kid he's a little older than me but he said I remember watching it as a kid and looking at it and he said now I see it's set in you know very suburban American town like you know there's nothing fancy about where E.T. is set and he said, but I remember as a kid growing up in the suburbs of England looking at it and that world just looked so colourful and everything was bigger. The fridges were bigger and they'd open the fridge and it was full of all this colourful produce and everything everything just looked more glamorous and somehow more exciting to us in the 80s. And they danced you know, on the roofs of England. taxis, didn't they, in, in the Kids from Fame. Yeah. Dreams it just, came true. The world just, it just felt vibrant in a way that again where I grew up in sort of suburban England didn't and of course looking back I realized there's things I'm so grateful for I'm very grateful to have grown up in Britain genuinely but um I was very excited by America and I think I felt you know while obviously the theatre in in London is you know some of the best in the world uh the film and TV and I just felt as an actor there was something about America that really excited me and I'd wanted to be an actor from the age of five I just I don't know I was excited by it I didn't even go to America until I was 18 but that didn't quell my love for it I even at 18 I I remember I went traveling around America my parents kind of amazingly let me go traveling around Montana and I I went with this group of Americans that I'd met and and I just you know I just I wanted to live there and then gosh years after that I felt that I wanted a change of scene as a playwright I, I was struggling here as a playwright and I was sort of in my late 20s and 
Yeah, I just felt, if I'm really honest, I felt as a woman in the theatre, it was really hard to get produced. And I had a lot of male peers who I'd come up with, all of whom were produced. I mean, all of them were being produced at great theatres across London and none of my female peers were being produced. You sort of had to be either very, very young, sort of 17 or 18 and, 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 and a woman and there was something very cool and unusual about you being young. But it felt for those of us who were kind of mid, late 20s, it, it was just tough. And um, I'd been doing quite a bit of work with a theatre company in America. I, I did some workshop stuff with them in New York and, and I just felt like, yeah, you know, I was asked to write a play with a tiny theatre company who had no money that I was sort of part of. And um, I, they couldn't pay me, but I said, well, will you help me get my, my visa? You know, that'll be payment, really. And so they did. And from that moment, I knew I could move over. And, and it was just... I was really excited about it and felt like, yep, this is the right path for me and, you know, very pleased to be in New York. And then once I got there the reality that it was Ugh. even harder actually as a playwright in New York than it was in London because they've no subsidies. So it's just, it's not a case of it's harder for women. It's just mm. harder for everyone in New York. And that I was really starting again in a way that I hadn't fully comprehended. You know, I remember them, yeah, just playwrights that were really famous there that I'd never heard of. And like I mentioned Simon Stevens and no one knew who he was at that time in New York. And I was astounded by that. And, but those first two years were tough and, and and did you think at that point you know what I might go and do something completely different or I might go back to acting because this isn't working do you ever feel like giving up yeah I definitely felt there was one moment in New York where I definitely thought really thought about coming back I think I'd been there about two years I was working about five different jobs had absolutely no money no prospect of money um you know I had like friends and family who were genuinely worried about me I had no health insurance I mean, it was, it was, ugh. and I remember standing in the shower. I was really unwell. I was standing in the shower and um, I was just like, I think I just have to go back. Like, I think I just have to go back and like get a job tending yeah. somewhere in London. Like, that's just what I have to do. And I just had such a strong feeling that if I did that, I would never return to America. Like, it really would be the end of it mm. for me. Um, and I just imagined my life. I just thought, and on one level, it felt like a huge relief. I was like, yeah, I'll just get up in the mornings and I'll be able to pay the rent and I'll get on the tube and I'll go to an office job and I'll just do some admin work and then I'll go home and I won't have any of this pain or worry. But I knew that within a month, I would regret that choice. And so I just sort of stuck with it. And then incrementally, things started to move. And... You know, it's not like it was completely bleak for years and years. You know, you'd win an award or you'd have a play reading at something very prestigious or your play would be chosen for something. Or, you know, there was like, you know, I got accepted a residency at a great New York theatre. Like, enough was happening to encourage me to yeah, keep just going. Yeah, just those little landmarks um, just kept you going. Yeah. And, and But was there a particular um, award or job that sort of then led you to, to get into television and working in L.A.? 
Yeah, it was a it was a very specific summer actually. I um I mean two things really. I did have one moment where I sort of woke up. I thought I'm in my early 30s and um you know, I'm in a flat share with someone. You know, I'm having I was teaching at a community college and kind of working as a personal assistant. I was like doing all these different I was just like I have no health insurance. No one is going to save me. Like I have to, if I'm going to stay in America, I don't want this to be my life in 10 years. Yeah. And so then I thought, okay, I'm going to go to LA. And I just, I wrote up a list of every single person who I felt I could call a favor in from who might know someone I could meet in LA. So I sort of wrote this list, I stuck it above my desk and I went through and I emailed and I, you know, I hate writing those emails. I think like everyone, particularly if you're British. And uh, I just thought, I'm just going to, yes. this is the moment, I'm just going to cash in all those chips. And so I just contacted everyone I knew who might have a contact in LA. And I said, I'm just going out for 10 days. Is there anyone you think I could have coffee with? And if there's not, no worries, but you know. And through that, a good friend of mine said, oh, I have a friend from college who's kind of an assistant of an assistant at ICM, who's a massive agency. And they said to me, you know, that guy, the assistant of the assistant called me before the meeting and said, do you have a, a show reel as an actor? And I said, no, all my credits are theatre. And he said, do you have a screenplay? And I said, no, I only have plays. And he said, OK, I'm just going to let you know now. Um, no one's going to sign you, just so you know. So you come in with like full expectations, like whatever agency you meet with, that's just the situation. And I said, I totally understand, you know, just happy to have a coffee. And I went into that meeting and he brought someone more senior into that meeting who was British. And it was this incredible meeting that we ended up having. And he ended up reading that agent, asked for some of my plays and read them. And I ended up signing with ICM from that meeting. And that really was a huge landmark moment for me because, you know, I had a good agent in London at the time, but it was like they were a huge agency and very hard to get into in America. So they they must have had an inkling. they They really wanted you. They did. And it sort of... Now I felt legitimised at that moment and I knew that LA was a possibility for me then in that moment. And then and then from that, really, it was... I had a summer of residencies in New York and was supposed to write a play over the summer and they house you and feed you. And, you know, I'd like... I'd given up my place in New York. I had a sublet in LA. I mean, I was kind of homeless, really, living at these residencies. And I didn't want to write another play. I was like, that's the last thing I need is a play that's going to sit in a drawer and remain unproduced. Like, I should be writing spec scripts for the screen. But because I'd won this award and this residency and uh, they were essentially paying for me to write a play, I thought, well, I have to honour this. So I spent that summer and that was a period actually where I did have a lot of time to really take walks and really think and just like do nothing but write. And the play I wrote from that ended up getting me my first TV job and has got me pretty much every TV job I've had since. <laughs> the so play you didn't want to write. It's never how you think it's going to go. <laughs> I know, exactly. I, I never even thought a play could get me a TV job. But yeah, it did. And it ended up being produced, that play. And it ended up being a, a big play, a big, you know, um, landmark for me, that piece of work. So yeah, it, it's sort of, it's never how you think it's going to happen. I think if you just see the opportunity that's given to you at that moment and just put everything into each opportunity as it comes, things will come from it that you don't expect. And also, you did a little bit of networking and just pulled in favours. As you say, we all hate doing it, but it obviously paid off. But also, the guys at ICM having the faith in you, they saw something there. But it, you just think, why didn't you do that five years earlier? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it was hard. I found it so hard in America because I was you know, in the UK, actually. Things are much harder in the UK in some ways and easier in others. And, and same for the States. So... 
uh, in the UK, I actually found getting an agent wasn't so hard. You know, I'd been part of the Royal Court program. I, I it was easy to contact agents, and I did. And you know, I had an agent who read my plays, and he was a very, and still is a very good agent. And uh, he read my plays, and he signed me. Fine. I moved to America, and I said to my friends who are writers, "Oh, can you introduce me to your agent because I need an agent over here?" And I'd say. Well, almost all of them were like, oh, we don't have an agent. It's like almost impossible getting an agent in America. And because I had no personal referral, I just couldn't get in mm. the door. And then it, it's it's just a much tougher system in that sense. And so, yeah, it took a while of being there before I just had built up enough references just to get just to get the meeting. So it's, you know, and I knew that once I was in the room, I was like, I have a good CV. I've got like, you know, I've got a good body of work, but just getting past... Security. Even the websites. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because even, even the landing pages for, for the major, for the big five agencies in America, it's literally a landing page and the contact is info at ICM.com. Right. And... In England, you can at least see the names of the agents and there's an email for them. And, you know, you can contact people. You cannot do that in the States. It's, it's, a, it's an iron door. But once you're through it, people are really open to finding new people and kind of from a writing perspective, that is. So, yeah, I was it, it, it was a long road getting there. But I'm I'm actually glad for the for the time in New York. It really strengthened me and made me a better writer. I would never have gone straight to LA and tried to be a, a screenwriter from London. It wouldn't have even occurred to me. So New York did lead to that for me, I'd say. And, and when you had to write that play that you didn't want to write, which actually, though, opened loads of doors for you, did you sit down every day and go, I don't want to write this? or Because or, I'm interested how you write and, and what time of the day you write. Is there a specific time? Did you sort of have to sit there with gallons of tea to get you through it? Or once you got into it, it was okay? Yeah, it, you know, it's so interesting, that play, because everything I'd written before had been very deadline-specific. And I I need a deadline. I am just one of those writers. I wish I could say, I just wake up at 9am and do four hours, and then that's my... You know, I, I just can't. I sort of... I need the pressure of something to push me forward. And they'd been deadlines that I'd put on myself previously, so it was an award that I really wanted to submit for or a writer's programme that I really wanted to get onto, and, you know, that has a deadline built in. But they were deadlines nonetheless. And with that residency, well, it was it was two residencies, actually, back-to-back. I had all this time, and I remember just... I had notebook after notebook, and I would get up every morning. And with the residencies, you're living in a house with other artists who are all doing their form of work. And you all have meals together. But other than that, you then all go off and you all work quite diligently. And it's in upstate New York. Um, the, the first residency I had is a place called Space on Ryder Farm. It's an amazing place on this organic farm upstate. Oh, wow. And you can walk around and you can, you know, walk on the lake and you can go for a swim or you can just sit in a hammock and write. I mean, whatever you want, you are left to your own devices. But I would just look around and there were all these artists and writers like working diligently away. And I sat there and I'd open a notebook up and every day I would write the same thing. I'd write, what is this play about? Question mark. <laughs> and then it was just like page upon page upon page of maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I don't, because I write almost as if I'm having a conversation with myself. I think it might be this. No, I don't. That's rubbish. What about this? Yes, I suppose that's better. You know, and I page and page of that. And then the next day I'd wake up and I'd open the page and I'd say, okay, what is this play about? And I just couldn't figure it out. And I had a director come and stay with me for a week because we were meant to be working on it together. And I said, I've got nothing to work on. I have no, I, I just still can't figure out what the bloody hell this play is about. And um, 
she sort of said, just take the time, just just allow yourself this time to have that thought process. And then after, at the very, very end of it, I was forced to provide some pages. Um, I had a, a writing residency at a theatre in New York and I had to provide pages and there had to be a read through of the play. And so I came back for my final week of the residency and I just sat down and suddenly like three months worth of ideas just formulated and... I just suddenly rem- remember thinking, oh, I just suddenly understood what the form of the play was. What a relief. And then I started to write it, <laughs> yeah. And then I started to write it and I wrote the entire thing in about two and a half, three weeks. It's the quickest I've ever written a play. And I realised, looking back, that that painful, what felt like endless process of seemingly doing nothing, actually, I was writing the play. It was just not in a form that I realised and that enabled me to then really write it with confidence when I wrote it. And it was definitely my best work to date. So, yeah, sometimes you think it's a nightmare when, you know... And, and that teaches you as well. It's still working. Yeah, it is still working, even if you're tearing your hair out. Do you have drawers of ideas yeah. that haven't made it to the, to the light of day? Yeah, I, I do. I, I have lots of, you know... And sometimes I'll write... It could even just be a monologue I write, and I don't even know who the character is who's saying it, or things you overhear... Um, that you make note of and that spark other ideas, loads of stuff like that, which occasionally I'll revisit. The, the nuggets that I really love, I still have in my mind. You know, I still have scenes in my mind that I haven't written or titles of plays that I haven't used yet. And you sort of don't forget those. They're kind of lying in wait somewhere at the back of your brain. <laughs> you need patience. <laughs> but um, And that's the hardest you thing, do. I think, it, with writing, is just the patience to know that, it's okay if it's not all great. It's in, To be honest, if you're writing something and you think it is all great from day one, it may not be what you think. You know, it, it's, it's actually part of the process is banging your head against the wall. It's the hardest bit, but that is part of it, for me at least. And you, and you talk about patience, but, um, you know, it's you've got to be really patient when a story that you've written it doesn't get past development there's a lot of that isn't there and just thinking okay well we've done a bit but we've got to go on to something new yeah but there's so much of that I mean the plays you know I think so many players have got a drawer full of plays that never get produced and and the hardest thing when I started you know I wrote a play that I was really confident with and I I felt it was good work and it, it was good work it got me a lot of attention and it got me an agent and you know I got a commission from another theatre from it but uh, I remember thinking, you know, well, I'll just sit and wait for this to get produced and then my life will change and then I'll write the next play. And the reality is you sort of have to put all that stuff on the back burner and just start writing the next thing. Um, and it's like sowing seeds. With TV, it's a bit different because it's in America, at least. It's not the same in the UK as much but in America it's a very quick turnaround in terms of whether they want to do it or not the development process is fast much faster in America than than the UK so you'll you'll sell an idea and they'll commission you to write the pilot and really within a month of having written the pilot they're going to say yes or no so wow you can't yeah it's it's a really it's a machine out there it's just it's just a much quicker turnaround and so you can't you can try and sell it to someone else, which I've done, and you know you sort of then try and develop it with another network. But you have to believe in it hundred percent when you're doing it. Be passionate about it while you're doing it, and at the same time, 
prepare yourself for the disappointment that ninety-five percent of the time the thing doesn't get made. So that is that, just hard. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And was it the work that you did in LA particularly that led to the then the Killing Eve job? Is that how you yeah. see it? Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, I think I had a relationship with AMC because I'd done Fear the Walking Dead um, with them before and I have a very good relationship with them and we'd sort of, you know, had conversations in the past about stuff we could do together. And then um, and then with BBC America, I, I they were, you know, I think looking for who next for this position and my manager called me and just said, you know, would you be interested in meeting on Killing Eve? And I was obviously like, yes. I'd just seen <laughs> it busy. funnily enough. I know, yeah. I was like, oh my God, you know, it was just so perfect. And again, being British was something that really excited me. Um, and yeah, they'd read my previous work. And as I said, I had a relationship with AMC, so they knew who I was. Um, and then, yeah, from that, it was just sort of the meetings. And, and as I'd said before, kind of, getting in that way but my my work in America definitely helped yeah and and you talked about the writer's room for people starting out how do you get in a writer's room I mean you did you you chose the the other writers in your room Mm -hmm. yes yes Sid Gentle had a a number of writers that they'd met with and then I, I met with them and then from those writers sort of put the room together and and what do your family think about I mean you've spoke about how your parents weren't quite sure what you were up to at school and but it was lovely how you know you had three siblings in America as well what how because you kind of come full circle I suppose how do they feel about seeing your name in the credits on one of the biggest shows on TV at the moment yeah you know it's it's so funny because um this stuff because your life happens incrementally you you know it, it doesn't look like that from the outside I'm sure but actually it's sort of it's I mean, this job was a huge deal when I got it. No questions asked. It was definitely the most high-profile thing I'd done. And, um, you know, my family... I'd worked on other shows and I've worked with very high-profile people. I've been very lucky like that. But this was a show where, like, whoever they mentioned it to had heard of it. It was a big deal in that sense. It was something culturally that so many people could reference. Mm, My my mum's heard of it. She's like, oh, goodness, is that where they they kill people all the time? I was like, yeah, "Yeah." my kids even know about it. You know, everybody knows about it, even if they don't watch it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's it's lovely. It's nerve-wracking for me, you know, again, for reasons that we've said before. With these, you sort of dream of getting big jobs like this and then you actually get them and then you realise that the pressure with them is, is significant and that it's, you know, it's really hard work. Um, and trying to craft something that you think really remains true to the world and yet you're breaking new ground and you know doing something different and taking risks but you know I mean just all those things it's it's very very hard that being said it's it's an amazing job and amazing fun and I think you've got to try and have as much fun with it as possible Mm. but um yeah you know my family are yeah I mean they're very proud and very supportive they've always been supportive even when they thought I was bonkers um (laughs) they've always been very supportive and and really you know stuck by me at moments where I think other people would would really tell me to have thrown it in I think that's a massive part of it though isn't it even when things are going wrong if your family are behind you it just gives you that impetus just to keep going that little bit longer which you did which then meant that you headed off to LA and 
and things really change for you. Um, you talked about possibly a little film and, and starring in it as well. Why not? What, what else is on the cards? Because it must be a little of a distraction having Killing Eve going out at the moment. But as you say, you, you've been writing in lockdown a lot. But what's what's next on the cards? Yeah, well, I, I have a deal with AMC. So um, it, it spans the next year, really. Uh, so I'm, I'm developing with them right now. And there's sort of various projects we're talking about at the moment, which I can't really say anything about. It's fine. I know. But they're exciting, I'm sure. Very exciting. (laughs) And I'm really excited creatively to sort of create characters from the ground up, you know, and really um, one of the best things about Killing Eve is the fact that it's a world of amazing characters, but you are, they are characters that are, there and ready and the actors know them incredibly well and the audience knows them incredibly well and you know everyone's got a, a handle on them and so you're trying to honor them as best you can and mm. i'm i'm really excited about like creating an entirely new world in that sense something that's from the ground up that's definitely artistically very exciting oh sounds intriguing and and you know you talked about watching et with your brother again and and loving some of the american shows growing up what what do you wish that you had written um, stuff that you just thought, oh, that's such a good line or such great characters. I mean, I the two TV shows that are always the gold standard for me are Mad Men and Six Feet Under. And I, I love the, you know, I love The Sopranos and The Wire and The Breaking Bads and all of that. But Mad Men and Six Feet Under are the two that I just very much, had I been a writer in Hollywood at that while they were being made, I would have done anything to have written for those shows. You know, they just... There's so my wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> and in film, you know, there's there's loads, really. I mean, a film that not many people know that I adore is a Carrie Fisher film that she wrote. And she was a phenomenal writer um, called Postcards from the Edge. And oh, it's yeah. really about being in Hollywood and kind of... it's. I, my sister watched it and she was like, well, there's too many in-jokes. There's a lot of Hollywood in-jokes in it. <laughs> but it's Meryl Streep and, um, and Shirley MacLaine. And Meryl Streep plays the Carrie Fisher character in Shelley McLean plays Debbie Reynolds, who's her mum. They're called different names, but it's an autobiographical film. And I watched that, and if I could get close to the wit of that dialogue, oh, I mean, yeah, I'd be very happy. Life made. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you were to look back on, on those pivotal moments in your career, you talked about um, Simon, who you spoke to at the, the Royal Theatre, who really made you see things, um, the Royal Court, sorry, who really made you see things differently. Um, and standing in the shower in LA, I'm just trying to think back to our conversation. What other big moments do you think made a real difference so far to your career? Yeah, it, it's, I would say, moving to New York and actually, and, and I know it sounds a bit trite, but really those first two years of difficulty, sort of, I actually, there was a lot of good to come from that too. And I... I really becoming part of the playwriting community in New York was a big moment for me. Um, and and drama school. I, I actually think drama school for me, even though I'm not an actor at the moment, it's really the training, the technical training you get in the UK at drama school is so good. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really, you realise actually, it, it's second to none. And when you... Yeah, when you see how different it is around the world, you know, it really is extraordinary here. And so that training and that discipline definitely was a key moment for me. And then I'd say really just writing the plays. I mean, just actually having finished a play, there's nothing like that feeling 
when you know you write end play or end scene capture black you know when you finish a script it's it's a genuine high I feel and it and it takes something out of me on such a deep level but yeah the the elation at that and knowing that you've made a thing you know you you've made something a tangible thing and and just that feeling nothing beats it creatively um for me than that feeling. so maybe your advice to anyone wanting to to get into writing is go and go train as an actor in london <laughs> <laughs> well my path's very specific <laughs> but my my advice really to anyone um who who is passionate about writing it's such a boring piece of advice and sounds so obvious is to write I mean, you can go to classes, you can get into schools, you can get into colleges, you can apply for people to teach you how to do this, that and the other. You can do a masterclass online. But ultimately, nothing is going to put you ahead of the game more than having written something. And I think actually just sitting down, for me, the hardest bit is doing the actual writing. But it's also the most exhilarating when you really feel you've keyed into it. And and I think you're only going to learn from doing no one can actually teach you what your voice is only you can find that for yourself and and you're only really going to discover that by doing it so i just say just just write it's it's you don't need anyone else in in as much as you know of course once you've written something and there's guidance and simon taught me stuff and helped guide me but ultimately the the writing is is really what's going to be key that that's it if you if you're passionate about doing it and getting your voice out there then we're yeah, doing just... um, we're doing home learning at the moment, and we did English this morning, and it was writing a story. And they had my two girls had this plan of you have to have like something unexpected happening. That's how they sort of teach them, and then how it resolves, and then the end. And in the end, we sort of just like just wrote anything, and that was sort of much better in a way. They were freer, but it's once they got going, it was just getting their ideas, and then then that's really satisfying to, to see. I mean, would you think about teaching eventually other people? I suppose you teach when you're in the writer's room, don't you? Yeah, I mean, well, you're sort of, you're guiding, I suppose, in the writer's room. You know, you're curating, I would say, maybe. I mean, it's, I have taught a little in the past. I've done workshops and things I've been asked to do. And I I love teaching, actually. And I I taught in New York. I I taught public speaking. I didn't teach writing. I taught public speaking at a community college when I, it's just like one of my many jobs while I was writing. Um... (laughs) Which actually was incredible because I saw such a cross-section of New York in that experience. It was, you know, I got to know the city and its inhabitants in a way I never would have done normally. But, um, yeah, I, I really love teaching. I mean, teaching is such hard work. I, I have such admiration for teachers, having having done it for a couple of years. You're telling me, doing it to your own children nearly kills me. <laughs> it's, I mean, it really is, it, it's, it is vocational in that sense. But I love teaching and if there was anything I felt I could pass on, yeah, of course, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. I think education, I wish I'd worked harder at school, in all honesty, and even though sort of, you know, people will say, well, you've ended up all right, and what does it matter? I, I would love to have really applied myself and known what I was capable of academically at school. Mm. Um, and, you know, that is that is a regret for me that I, that I didn't work as hard as I could have done. Yeah, I, I think actually education is just, 
it's so key to, to giving us those tools and enabling us. And for me, my, my education was drama school. That's what enabled me to really become a playwright and understand the story form in a way. And then the Royal Court Theatre was, was really what helped me um, in that sense. But, you know, I, I think for different people, it's, it's different. Yeah. 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 So it, it's, it, it's just what suits you. And it, it's no one size fits all, I think. But what's so brilliant is you've taught us such a lot today just you know hearing about your experiences I know what works for you but also just inspiring other people not to give up just keep going because then yeah. you can be you know the head honcho really for Killing Eve series three <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I I think whatever you're pursuing genuinely it is a case of just tenacity I think and just knowing in your heart that and 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 I think particularly if you're it's it's finding workarounds actually. So I think if you're waiting at the other end of the phone for someone to call you to give you a job in whatever creative field it might be, and that's not happening, I started writing purely as a way of getting around that problem. Yeah. I was like, well, I got to find another way to make this happen. And I think it's that it's it's looking at what else can I be doing. And when I saw that playwriting really wasn't going to enable me in America to survive, like actually there's just not enough money in the theatre. I was like, then I have to start writing for screen and I really have to start developing those skills. And so it's just about adapting what that passion to to what you think you should be doing next. But yeah, you just got to stick with it. It's it's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> and that's really annoying. But uh even for people who get their break very early and what seems like very seamlessly and easily, the hard work will come. It'll just be later on. You know, it, it, it's hard work. There's no two ways around it. But, you know, that's it is. Part and of it's it. truly inspiring talking to you, Suzanne. Um, and I know you can't give anything away, really. We've had a massive episode three of Killing Eve. Are there going to be other sort of turning point moments this season without giving anything away? Yeah, I have to be horribly, boringly vague, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's an, you, you've got a lot of twists and turns to oh, come. For tantalising. Sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending the time. I know, we've, well, a lot of us have a lot of it. Um, but, you know, even that, you're probably incredibly busy for, for taking the time to talk to us today and uh, for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Oh, no, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Suzanne for taking the time to talk to me. Cannot wait to hear what she's going to write for us next. Now, we've got TV writer Katie Baxendale on season one of the podcast. And there are other authors on there too, like Claire McIntosh and Joe Cottrell. Go check them out. You can follow us on Twitter at WhereGoWrite and subscribe and rate us if you can on Podbean, Spotify and iTunes. Thanks to Megan for brilliant production as always and Laura Shipsey for the music. We'll see you next week. This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right?